Welcome to Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Dairy Team. I'm Rainy Rosemont, and I'm a dairy educator based in Berks County, Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Robert Vanson from the Penn State University. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Vanson. Yeah, good morning, Rainy, and glad to be here with you. If you could take a second to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at Penn State, I think our listeners would really appreciate it. Sure. I'm one of the old guys. I'm one of the four extension veterinarians located here at University Park at Penn State. And beyond my academic teaching activities, I'm involved with the outreach program, which of course is extension of Penn State, and provide educational information to producers, veterinarians, and others involved in agriculture. Our role is to, one, provide translational information of the ongoing research here at Penn State into practical application. And two, provide diagnostic support to the industry in problem solving of on-farm animal health related type issues. Thanks for letting us know a little bit about you and what you do. If you're ready to get started, today we're going to be talking about the interaction between nutrition and mastitis prevention on dairy farms. So just to kind of start us off with a pretty broad question, what are the key periods where nutrition can play a major role in preventing mastitis? That's a good question to start off with. We know that nutrition can influence the immune response and and ultimately mastitis risk at any time throughout the gestation lactation cycle. However, we think about the two greatest risk periods in a cow's life cycle being soon after the dry off period where the lactation is stopped so we don't get that flushing action to the mammary gland, and then right after the initiation of lactation again, uh, following calving. So we'll certainly dive into that transition period a little later on, but in line with specific periods in the lactation cycle, are there any main nutrients that should be considered when using nutrition as a preventative mastitis strategy? Well, almost all nutrients can impact the immune response negatively when they're deficient or potentially in excess. We most often focus on energy and protein nutrition during this transition period from a cow metabolic health and and certainly potential for adversely affecting immunity. Much research has focused on the trace minerals and vitamins relative to mastitis, given the historic documentation of selenium and vitamin E's role in immunity and mastitis. Some of that original research was done here at Penn State back in the 1980s. Other work suggests vitamin A and zinc are also of great interest. And going back to research of the 1980s, it was shown that hypocalcemia, what we typically call milk fever in our dairy cows, was highly associated with greater mastitis prevalence. Some of my work looking at the trace elements would suggest elevated blood iron, which might come from water or the diet, and deficient copper might also contribute to increased mastitis risk. 
Bottom line is that we need to feed a properly balanced diet, keeping in mind the role of minerals and vitamins on immune function. So those are a lot of nutrients to sort of keep in your head. How do these nutrients impact mastitis prevention? And are there any obvious signs that farmers can look for that point to deficiencies in these nutrients? Yeah, that's, that's uh, an important issue to address. Most nutrients have their impact on mastitis through how they influence various aspects of the immune response. Most of the trace elements in the fat-soluble vitamins, which would be vitamins A, D, and E, are important mediators of various aspects of immune regulation and the response. With the exception of body condition score loss prior to calving indicating negative energy balance, there are not real obvious signs, clinical signs associated with these various nutrient deficiencies. Let me, let me try and clarify this point. We know that the immune response is considered a high cost physiologic response of the body. It's the first response, however, to be compromised in the face of a nutritional deficiency or deficiencies. This seems sort of counterintuitive. However, maintenance, pregnancy, lactation are considered higher priority functions compared to the immune response. Thus, when there's a compromise in the immune response, it might be considered a subclinical deficiency of these nutrients compared to a true clinical deficiency that has very specific clinical signs or changes in the animal that can be observed associated with a given nutrient. For example, clinical calcium deficiency is manifested as a down milk fever cow, right? We all know about those. Yeah, Due to the loss of muscle tone, we can see greater risk for mastitis as the T sphincter end, our muscle, uh, will not close tightly after milking to prevent this bacterial movement through the street canal. However, with subclinical hypocalcemia, which is a more prevalent problem that we see in our, our dairy cows, we see an impairment in the functionality of the immune cells, preventing their ability to perform their mastitis preventive kind of activities. And this, this goes beyond finding, you know, kind of mastitis. We wouldn't really notice any other clinical signs. So that makes it a much more challenging problem. So two questions kind of came to mind after hearing that. You mentioned there aren't really any key clinical signs to look out for, but if a farmer notices any sluggish or underperforming cows, what should or could they do to ensure that nutrition is adequate and not a contributing factor? Well, there's a number of different things. I think, first of all, producers have so much on their mind today with prices and, and all these other things. They really need to take advantage of the resources that they have at their disposal, that their nutritionist, their veterinarian, extension uh, personnel. They need to communicate with their nutritionist and their veterinarian about these issues. Uh, blood samples, for example, could be taken by their veterinarian to assess nutritional 
status for many of the critical nutrients, including calcium, vitamin A, vitamin E, selenium. The nutritionists, of course, can look at the formulated diet, take some samples and decide if the diet's being mixed properly and, and formulated properly or consumed in adequate amounts by the cow. And so these are, you know, kind of things that we need to think about. And we also need to consider that the guidelines for nutritionists to use don't account for all the potential issues that might go on on a farm. You know, they, they don't necessarily address heat stress and other things. So this is where the clinical experience of the nutritionist is really important in adjusting to compensate for these issues. So you also mentioned milk fever and the role calcium plays in potentially preventing mastitis during the transition period. Are there any management strategies for preventing mastitis in the event of an unidentified calcium issue? So as we discussed, you know, calcium, both clinical and subclinical deficiencies plays a, an important role in increasing mastitis risk. I would hope that, you know, most producers and their milkers are using their California mastitis test or CMT paddles to evaluate for elevated somatic cell count as evidence of potential either subclinical or clinical mastitis, as well as monitoring any clinical changes in the milk or in the, the udder itself. Certainly early recognition of mastitis is critical to improving cure rates. When we think about the, the role that calcium plays, we have some options, both of which are somewhat challenging in terms of trying to maintain calcium homeostasis. We can try feeding a low calcium diet and the current interest in what we call the Goldilocks diet as a dry cow diet, this is where we, we feed a high fiber diet with maybe corn silage. And between the straw and the corn silage, we actually can feed a fairly low calcium diet and help minimize some of the calcium dysregulation that occurs at the time of calving, leading to either subclinical or clinical hypocalcemia. Another option at our disposal is the use of dietary cation anion difference, or what we call DCAD diets. And we can add things, uh, commercial products called anionic salts to help maintain a stronger calcium homeostasis. You know, obviously those come with a higher cost and they're not appropriate to be feeding the heifers. So, we, we have some constraints in what we can potentially do, but we should at least be addressing those issues. So you mentioned heifers and I'm gonna change the topic up on you a little. Heifers tend to have different nutrient requirements than mature cows and they're often fed different diets. Are they more likely to be deficient in one nutrient compared to the others? Yeah, here at, in Pennsylvania with our traditional farm size and, and animal numbers, we do run into this challenge. When we look at the new NRC, or now it's called NASEM, the dairy nutrient requirements, the 
intake rate for springing heifers is considered to be 88% of the mature dairy cow. So right there, you know, when you have that big of a difference in intake capacity, it's hard to formulate a diet that's going to meet the needs of the animal. In actuality, if you look at the requirements, the energy requirement and the protein requirement for a mature dry cow is not much different than a springing heifer because of their additional growth requirement. However, since they eat less, it's got to be packaged and made more concentrated. And that's the problem is if we overfeed energy and potentially protein to the mature cow, we may increase the metabolic disease problems that we see in them. And if we underfeed the heifers, then we're going to see potentially poor milk production, higher disease, including mastitis risk. So so this is really one of the critical issues in farm management in trying to make the right decisions to, to minimize the impacts. Yeah, that certainly is a sticky situation, especially with the farm size. Like you mentioned, some farms might only have one cow freshening at a time and mixing a special ration just for them is certainly a challenge. So with that in mind, are there any feed or feeding management strategies during the lactation cycle and more specifically for the fresh and close-up cows that farms could be doing and help preventing mastitis? Yeah, so certainly in the transition period, it's going to be critical to provide adequate feed bunk space. We know cows will be very aggressive at the feed bunk compared to heifers. And, and so that becomes a challenge. Whether you have a post and rail type system or a headlock type system, actually, believe it or not, headlocks might be a better approach in the transition because with a post and rail, there's a lot more opportunity for a cow to come up and knock a heifer out of the, the feed bunk. The current recommendation is, a, is about 30 inches of feed bunk space per animal. If you do have a mixed group, we might even want to increase that a little bit more, spend a little bit of extra money to, to extend that feed bunk space and give the, hef the heifers all the opportunity they need to eat what they can eat. Having feed available about 22 hours out of the 24-hour day, using push-ups to make sure that the feed quality is still there. Don't expect them to try and clean up the leftover roughage. That's really the bad situation. Pull that material away and replace it with some better quality or fresher material. And then Certainly with all the new research coming out on the impacts of heat stress on the pregnant animal and in the early fresh cow, there certainly is a need for heat abatement strategies, whether you're using sprinklers or fans or whatever, this is going to be really important in that transition period in that dry cow. And there's, there's some really interesting work coming out of University of Florida that highlights the negative effects on the calf that will be born to that cow, as well as the cow's performance, including immune function under heat stress conditions. 
So do you have any takeaway messages that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I, I think, first of all, we, even though I love nutrition as a primary preventative for animal health and think about, you know, what I learned in veterinary school was how to fix broken cows. And really what the producer needs is cows not to get broken. And so nutrition certainly is an important cog in that wheel there, but we need to recognize that mastitis still remains one of the most significant and economically costly diseases in our dairy herds. And we, we are making some progress as we see with somatic cell counts in our national herd going down. There's no simple solution. There's no quick fix to this as evidenced by how long this has been around. Good nutrition is one piece of that management program. I encourage producers to work with their nutritionists, their veterinarians, and their extension educators to develop a more comprehensive plan and program that addresses the cow environment, the milking process, milking machine maintenance, and disease recognition and treatment protocols in their effort to try and control mastitis on their farm. Well, that was a great talk. Thank you, Dr. Van Son, for meeting with us today. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any further questions regarding this topic, you can email me at rfr49 at psu.edu. This wraps up season nine, and we will be back with season 10 soon. Thanks for listening.